welcome to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon. I'm your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. The Fallon Forum, as you might know, has aired continuously for the past 12 years. We offer a, what I call a stunningly, if I may, a stunningly unique platform of uh, viewpoints that you're not going to hear on the commercial stations, the big ones. So if you value what we do, you know, if you're a business, a nonprofit, an individual, think about supporting us. It makes a difference. And thanks also to our business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. There you go. That's my anchor sponsor. Also my grocery store and a specialty food store as well. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. They've also got a catering service and a floral service as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-paid basis. Contact Dr. Drake at drakefamilyclinic.com. All right, thanks again for coming to the program today, folks. And um, we, uh, before we get into it here, I want to give you a brief rundown of our lineup. Uh, for those in our podcast audience, we will be interviewing Marcus Canaan. I think I'm saying it right. There we go, Marcus Canaan. Uh, he's a candidate for the Des Moines City Council. Charles Goldman is going to join me in the studio today as well. And we're going to discuss, actually, we're going to have uh, Dr. Mark Allen Derry on the program with us. He's an infectious disease physician in New Orleans, been on the front lines of the COVID fight. And we're going to talk about the COVID variants coming our way. We'll also be talking about concerns about wind, how big oil is buying into big wind, and maybe wind is not the panacea for the climate crisis. We'll also talk about affirmative action. Is there a future for affirmative action? And we'll talk about the future of the Olympics. Is there a future for the Olympics? And we'll also talk about what needs to be done to save the cucumbers. I would like to, at this point, welcome to the program, Marcus Canaan. He's a candidate for the Des Moines City Council in Ward 1. Marcus, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. Happy to be here. So, uh, you know, you're running against Bill Gray, and I think you've got a third opponent as well. Yep, that's correct. Three... Three-headed three race. Okay, a three-headed race. And your background, you've um, you've been on the Des Moines Metropolitan Planning Organization. You've been involved with the Beaverdale Neighborhood Association. You've got extensive background, both working and otherwise in transportation. Uh, delighted to have you on the program. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty good summary of what I, my background is. So. <laughs> good. So climate change, happening? Not happening. Yes or no? Yes, of course it's happening. <laughs> okay. uh, I think... You know, the Metropolitan Planning Organization is a planning agency, so my background is in urban planning. Um, and I think that for the last decade, really, everything related to planning has had a tie to hmm. climate change and how do we address climate change, um, especially I, I, in transportation. And I presume you're going to go along with the notion that it is human-caused as well. Yeah, of course. You know, everything okay. that I've, I've read is that after the Industrial Revolution, it's just accelerated, so yeah. can't has to be has to be human driven. So let's cut to the chase. What can local governments do in response to the climate crisis? Sure, I think there you know there are lots of things that that local governments can do. Um, one is prioritizing new energies um, into into our mix, whether it's again focusing in transportation, electric vehicle production and and use. Um, how do we get our fleets converted to all electric hmm. or mostly electric? How do we encourage residents to, you know, invest in solar. How do we get the city to invest in solar? How do we? That's, you know, <laughs> one of the things that I've been looking into recently is... I mean, part of the problem is you get Mid-American Energy, the utility monopoly, who yeah. provides the service in Des Moines, 
And they don't want to let go of that. Sure. They want to hang on to that. There are definitely <laughs> ways that, that solar can be can be used within cities. You put it on a roof um, of a city building to help offset some of the some of the use, um, energy use. You could uh, put it on a wastewater lagoon. I, there's a city in New Jersey that just did this. Mm -hmm. uh, and Des Moines has some pretty nice wastewater lagoons that that would be available for solar. Hmm. You know, so, okay. so good options. So uh, one thing that's of particular importance to me and of interest to our audience is uh, local food uh, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And that um, there's a lot of concern that the food uh, chain will be disrupted as climate change worsens. What are your thoughts on what the city can do regarding increasing our resilience with, uh, with regards to food? Sure. You know, I think that when I was walking in here, I saw that you had a lot of a lot of raised beds, <laughs> sure uh, a lot of gardening being done, a lot of farming. Um, you know, one of the things that I think about are the programs that we already have in place. We have we have programs that focus on stormwater management, and and residents can get rain barrels. We have programs that improve our homes, and you know, through InvestDSM, they can do landscaping in their front yards. Um, so why aren't we incorporating some some aspects of maybe farming, urban farming, urban gardening into those programs and helping fund raised beds, hmm. you know. Why are we? Well, I don't know. I think, you. <laughs> you know, part of it is like InvestDSM is set up for, for homeowner renovation and curb appeal. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just not, it could be a project, but it's just not, you know, driven and supported um, through promotions as, as an option. Um, the other one is, you know, our rain barrel production and that program is really focused on trying to retain some of that stormwater. Mm -hmm. So, excellent. Yeah, and that's another issue too: is water. We have some of the most polluted waterways in the country, or where we draw our water from. We have the one of the most expensive nitrate removal systems. Yep. Again, that's Des Moines Water Works. Uh, that is not officially a part of the uh, city of government, but that, but um, quite tied to it. And mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, they're, they've got a lot of uh, challenges that are kind of beyond their control in some cases. Yeah. Rain barrels will help. It's not the total answer. But. Right. No, definitely not. Uh, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is we have concern about water coming down from the rural areas, but what about water coming into our watersheds from the urban areas? You know, we have massive parking lots um, that some of them just got repaved. Mm -hmm. We have a project, um, the Merle Hay Mall is getting redeveloped. It's going to be great for the neighborhoods. Um, Again, with a massive parking a lot. A massive parking lot. Yeah. So why don't, we, why don't we take this time when it's being redeveloped to redevelop some of that parking and get permeable pavers in? So what is the cost differential on that? Is that? I assume that's a big part of the problem. It's more expensive. I, 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 assuming that it is more expensive, um, I haven't done the cost analysis on what it would take for yeah. Merle Hay Mall to offset but again, but again, there's benefits. Yeah, there's benefits to, to capturing that stormwater on site. Yeah, what's you know, and what's the expense of bailing out, literally bailing out a neighborhood exactly. that is under, like Forest Hill, underwater yep. after that uh, that ten inch rainstorm yeah. in two hours a couple of years ago. Yep. So it's all about you know capturing capturing the water where it lands, um, and I think that we can with some changes, some tweaks, some encouragement from the city, maybe some incentives. Yeah. Uh, so so far, mo most of the candidates I've spoken with are all on board with doing having the, having the council be more proactive about addressing climate and also about the food resilience uh, component of it. Mm -hmm. What what distinguishes you from your opponents? What distinguishes me from my opponents? You know, I think my opponents have one of you know one is really running on the last eight years and doesn't really have a vision uh, for the next four. Um, you know, my my vision is pretty clear. I think it's. Uh, implementable in the next four years, uh, we can achieve these things, and they'll have lasting effects. 
you know, 40, 50, 60 years, hopefully. Um, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot now that I have a, a young daughter is the fact that she'll see 2100. And when you think about that, you know, what what is the world going to look like in 2100? What is Des Moines going to look like in 2100? And can, in the next four years, I make a difference that will help improve that? Yeah, and I would argue that the climate emergency is progressing so quickly at this point that we're going to feel... Uh, huge impacts a lot sooner than 2100. Oh, for sure. Probably within this decade. For sure. Uh, including possibly a mass migration from the west uh, where there is not enough water to survive. Yeah, and the south if, you know, sea, lo sea levels start to rise. Well, the coast, yeah. yeah. But I, I think that I think that might take longer than the impacts that we're going to be seeing out west. But So, yeah, I mean, it seems like Des Moines needs to be really prioritizing this as, as, a, as the emergency it is. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things that I've, I've put in my plan is is to also uh, look at how do you do emergency management on the local level. So it's whether it's those short-term storms or those long-term impacts, you know, we have a plan for it. So, yeah. Well, anyway, I I, um, I, I think uh, I think that's all interesting, good, valuable. Um, I'm, I'm, try, I'm still trying to understand when you say that you say uh, a candidate running on the past eight years, you're looking at the next four years. That's very general. I don't know what to make of that specifically. Sure. Uh, can you be more specific about what your what your distinctions are between you and the other candidates? Yeah, you know, I think that I, I have a pretty clear vision that to move Des Moines forward, we need to have a safer, a safer city, safer streets. We need to have, you know, a more sustainable city for for a brighter, sustainable future. We need to have stronger neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. We've we've lost a lot of investment in our neighborhoods. Um, the city has has removed staff and prioritized other elements. And, and all that uh, sounds like every can, every candidate's campaign brochure. Sure. So what's the difference? Well, you know, why, why, why Marcus over the other two? <laughs> I bring I bring an understanding of of how cities work, how they function, and I can implement I can implement my strategy in the next four years. Okay. And you see uh, a response to climate as being a big part of that. Absolutely. Okay. Marcus, thank you so much for joining us, uh, folks. We've been inviting all the uh, Des Moines City Council candidates to join us. So far, seven have accepted. And, um, yeah, I, this is the fourth, and we have three more coming up. Maybe the final one will accept as well. Uh, again, you can always uh, check out these conversations on the Fallon Forum website page on our podcast or the Fallon Forum's YouTube channel. And thanks also to the local businesses that support and sponsor this program, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Westrum Optometry, Groovy Goods, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. We'll be back in a minute, folks. Charles Goldman's joining us. We're going to be talking about COVID and a bunch more. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com.
Welcome back to the program. Charles Goldman sitting in with me today. Later in the program, we'll be discussing why wind energy may not be the panacea to the Earth's climate problem. We'll also discuss the future of affirmative action. What does that look like? And also, speaking of the future, we'll ponder what the future of the Olympics might look like. And then later in the program, uh, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm joining us to discuss... What do you do with all these cucumbers? <laughs> all right, so, hey, uh, thanks again to Bold Iowa, building rural-urban coalitions to address the climate crisis and to prevent the abuse of eminent domain to build pipelines. You can learn more at boldiowa.com. Uh, thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. You can get information about classes and workshops at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. Remember, folks, what you hear on this program, you won't hear on the corporate-owned stations. You can support the alternative to the right-wing shock jocks by becoming a monthly sponsor. You can email me for more information at ed at fallonforum.com. Hey, so, uh, Charles, welcome to the program. We're delighted to have you and also delighted to welcome Dr. Mark Allen Derry to the program. Hello, Mark Allen. How are you? Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me on. Mark Allen's no stranger to this program. He's an infectious disease physician in New Orleans. He's been on the front lines of the COVID fight in Louisiana. And if you haven't seen the recent animated video he and his co-worker, Dr. Griggs, put out, it's hilarious and instructive, and I'm jealous. Charles, I think we need a similarly animated video of you and me. That'd be great. Yeah. So check yeah, I'll, out... I'll have to check it out. All right, check out Noise Filter. You'll find the video and more information about Dr. Mark Allendary's work on Noise Filter. Welcome to the program. So COVID... Um, uh, always finding clever ways to keep us guessing, and now apparently there's a new variant out there that people are concerned about. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 also just as just a quick clarification, it's noisefiltershow.com. Ah, gotcha. Noisefiltershow.com, and actually, if people are interested in seeing the second animation that we created, I wrote that script Ed, in, in February. And in that second script, that second animation, we're talking about the emergence of variants. Uh -huh. So just to give you an idea that, like, I'm not clairvoyant at all, like, but we knew this was coming. I mean, public health practitioners like myself knew that variants were going to be inevitable. And even though that script was written in February and we actually produced the animation in March uh, and released it, uh, you know, it is prescient now because we are seeing a lot from this so-called Delta variant. And this variant emerged initially out of India. And with each variant, what we were seeing is more infectiousness. And that infectiousness comes from an actual structural change on the virus itself. That spike protein keeps twisting. And each right. time it twists, it's like a key fitting into a lock. And it gets a lot smoother as it gets into the lock. So this is the case with this Delta variant. But not only is it a structural change, but you also produce a lot more virus. So for every one virus you had with the initial wild type strain, the one that emerged out of Wuhan, you have a thousand more of the, this Delta strain. And then the last thing that kind of came out of last week's big, big news was uh, what kind of the Washington Post, the story that the Washington Post broke, which was essentially that people who are vaccinated still carry the same viral load as people who are unvaccinated, they may not have symptoms 
or they may have symptoms, kind of mild symptoms like a common cold, but they still are able to transmit the virus. And so this is why it's incredibly important for all of us to wear masks indoors, whether you're vaccinated or not. And in fact, the governor of Louisiana just about 20 minutes ago mandated right. mass so uh, mandates. I, th- I, think, I think I saw that same article in the Washington Post you're mentioning. Yeah, it was, yes, based, on, yes. it was based on a, a group of 800 people who were at uh, Provincetown, Cape Cod. But so here's one question. There's a, there's a, a guy quoted in the article, Nathaniel Landau, he's a microbiologist uh, at New York, New York University, and he said, and I quote, it doesn't, the, this is regarding the lambda mutation, he says it doesn't really make the situation any worse, it's just more of the same. Would you disagree with that? It sounds like you guys might both disagree with that. Well, one thing I would say is, you know, there, there's, there's a micro and a micro, a macro ecology of these, these viruses, and one of the things maybe Mark Allen can talk to a little bit is, that almost every one of the spikes of the Delta has disappeared after peaking relatively quickly in India and the UK, for instance. Um, And they're on their way down again, and we're now on our way up. And it's hard to explain because there wasn't enough of a change in vaccination rates to explain why these are peaking and then... Right, right, right. It's such a good point. For a second, I thought you were talking about the spike protein. No. But the spike in cases. <laughs> the actual spike in cases. cases. Right. Right. So it's because the reason why is that this virus, if you're unvaccinated, it'll find you. And it'll find you fast. One of the other big, big, big revelations that we, we heard from last week was that the r naught that's the infectious, that's a number that we assign to a virus to determine how infectious it is. So a virus that has an r naught of one, let's say, one person could transmit it to one other person. HIV, for example, has an r naught of two. So one person living with HIV could theoretically transmit it to two people. Uh, measles has an r naught of 15. One mm-hmm. person with measles could trans, uh, transmit to 15 other people. Hmm. What we've learned was that the original virus for uh, that emerged out of Wuhan, the wild type virus, had an R naught between two and three. Let's say it was 2.5. One person can transmit it to 2.5 people. It now has an R naught. This Delta has an R naught of eight, which puts it on par with chickenpox. So this means that you are. You, this is a highly aerosolized. Uh, virus, you can transmit it to large groups of people. And so what happens is that you get these rapid spikes in cases, but it finds all the people who are vulnerable to it, and then it burns out very quickly. And I think that's what we're going to see here in the U.S. We're going to see a huge uptick. August, I've been warning everybody who will listen to me, will likely be a very difficult month in terms of cases. Uh, doctors like myself and like Charles, who, who are doing this on the front line, are going to be overrun with cases. Uh, I work in the hospitals, so we're going to see, and we're starting to see significant uptakes in the hospitals you, as well. Are you seeing uh, that, Charles? And then it's going to burn itself out. Now, uh, to answer your question, were you referring that somebody was talking about the Lambda variant? That's yes. That's what you were saying? Yes. That I wholly disagree with that, of course. Um, and I think that the Lambda variant, which is, now we were just talking about the Delta variant, so everybody recognized that this is like kind of what it's like living in the Gulf South when we have multiple hurricanes coming to us at the time, right? <laughs> right Which right. we saw last summer, right? We saw at one point there was five named hurricanes in the Gulf and we got hit with a couple of them. Right. So the next kind of named hurricane behind Delta is called Lambda, which is circulating uh, in, the, uh, in South America. This one originated out of Peru. And there are some issues with this one that include possibly being vaccine evasive. So that it means that uh, uh, that for people, uh, you know, that, that people who got vaccines, that this may 
uh, uh, kind of skirt around immunity that was uh, induced as a result of the vaccine. So, Mark, let me, let me ask Charles if he's seen that kind of an uptick at the hospitals here in Des Moines. Uh, not yet, but uh, we see the the uh, tidal wave starting to approach, and it may not be directly for what's going on in Iowa. Although, the, to me, the stupidity of running the Iowa State Fair um, a week from now uh, at this point makes no sense. And you know, they they were having shows on about the people in the campground adjacent, where it's one person on top of another, and it's, it, this is going to be a super <laughs> spreader event. Oh. Are you we, saying we, there's going to be a fair coming up? That's you guys correct. Are going to have a fair a state week? fair, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 It, Two weeks from three weeks from now, start to watch the exactly. Happen. But we just said we just had well, we just had the annual big bike ride across Iowa. That's twenty thousand people. Yeah, but at least that was mostly outside. Yeah, okay, um, good point. No, but Mark Allen, it's really interesting. You know that we talk about these traditional viral diseases, uh, and two of the worst in terms of R not are chickenpox and measles is kind of the gold standard. And, right. and what's interesting is that traditional vaccine technology, you know, the old inactivated kind of vaccine technology, I guess in the case of measles, I don't know whether the chickenpox is, is recombinant or not, but these are fairly traditional vaccines were highly effective in highly contagious diseases in making them minor diseases until recently when we had the anti-vaxxers, you know, stopping people and what, what, doing what, those. And what percentage of chickenpox or measles patients were, ended up in fatality? Well, the fatality rate was not as high, but the the long term consequences of the the infections, I mean, like with measles, shingles, shingles yeah. it's shingles issue, and measles with with its associated neurologic issues, uh, were worth avoiding. But let, let me run a, let me run a statistic by you guys that I found on CNN this morning. Uh, this is from yesterday's uh, story. Uh, data shows that um, oh, as of July, less than 0.004 percent of fully vaccinated people had a breakthrough case of coronavirus that led to hospitalization and less than 0.001% of fully vaccinated people died from a breakthrough but COVID. that was before the delta variant became predominant that's still wild type Wuhan okay. so you, numbers that, you think that might change or will uh, yes so, i think so i know mark allen what do you think yeah let me uh, yeah let me just kind of weigh in on that i i think i, I part ways just a little bit with you charles i think what the what that is saying is that and let's be very clear the the mRNA vaccines that we're talking about about ninety five percent of America who's vaccinated against coronavirus got the mRNA vaccines. Okay, so uh, the mRNA vaccines prevented infection with the wild type virus and prevented infection with the alpha virus variant. But what we're seeing now is that that protection is significantly waned. So people are still getting these so-called breakthrough infections. There's not a day that goes by that I don't hear about a half a dozen to a dozen people around me, my social networks that are calling me or texting me or whatever, saying, hey, I know people who've gotten breakthrough infections with the uh, uh, with the Delta variant, which is of which is greater than 90 percent of the species that are uh, that are circulating here in, in New Orleans. Yeah. But so, what the vi- what the vaccine does do is it is excellent in providing protection from going to the hospitals, the severity of disease, and then mortality. And that's why we saw about two weeks ago mm. the so, CDC said that 99.5% of people that are dying or that are even hospitalized well, are those that are unvaccinated. The, the, the other issue I bring up right now, which is that the hospitals as they are now are not the hospitals as they were a year ago. Um, True. I would assume you have the same issue we do, which is we're down 100 nurses. And why is that? Right. 
because people got burned out. gave up. They got burned out, and and they they're angry like we all are about how we got here. And after a while, you can be called a hero and all that, but the reality was nobody was willing to do the most minor thing, which was put a mask on. Mm. To, but what, you know, what, about the, what about the somewhat significant percentage of healthcare workers who themselves are disinclined to be vaccinated? Ninety-seven um, percent of doctors have been vaccinated. Doctors, that's right. but there's still a bunch of uh, healthcare workers who have chosen not to be. Well, like forty percent, I think, in, in some states. I mean, a lot, of those health, a lot of those healthcare workers on places like you know group group settings, nursing homes, things like that. It is true. Yes, we had the case down where the nurses at at the uh, big hospital system in Houston did not want it mandated. Um, the F, the FDA needs to finally just give full approval to the RNA, the mRNA vaccines already and stop this issue of claiming it's not approved, yeah, therefore well, it's not why, safe. Why haven't they? I don't That's know. A, Mark yeah. Allen, why do you think the FDA is dragging their feet? It, uh, you know, it's a good question. Um, it's, the fact that the VA last week uh, approved uh, this vaccine mandate to me means um, that federal agencies were waiting for the FDA to approve. And because it's not been approved yet, that is probably going to take longer to get to it. And uh, my my colleague, Doc Griggs, says he thinks that what it is is that they're trying to erase this notion of thinking that the uh, to get to the emergency use authorization, that that was, quote unquote, a rapid procedure. So they want to kind of avoid saying that they rapidly approved it. Uh, for full mm-hmm. approval that they're going to take mm-hmm. the time. But it's ridiculous because hundreds and hundreds of millions of people have gotten the mRNA vaccine mm-hmm. and they have the their, the uh, complication rate from it is less than 1% by several zeros leading, you know, it's like 0.00002 or something. Yeah. It's it's ridiculously, this is really one of the safest vaccines uh, that, that we know of. And so why the FDA hasn't done it, I, I really, really uh, don't know. But it's good to see that that hospital system, uh, Charles, we were talking about in Houston, uh, won their case. Uh, it's good to see that in, in Indiana University also won their case in terms of the vaccine mandate. And now what you're going to start seeing are vaccine mandates start to pop up on airlines, entertainment venues. Uh, here in Orleans, uh, several uh, nightclubs, uh, music venues uh, are requiring vaccine. Uh, uh, that you On your phone, we have something called the LA, uh, you have a digital license here that a lot of people use. Uh, and then if you've got a vaccine uh, in the state because of the state mandate, or it's a state vaccine, it'll have on there that you've been vaccinated. So that's what they, they're not using the little card. Gentlemen. They're actually using, you know, a real state sanction type of thing. So uh, I have a feeling we're going to see more of that moving forward. I've got to wrap up the uh, segment here. I really appreciate you guys joining us. Uh, Real quick, though, just one last quick question. We're likely to see this get worse before it gets better. Charles? Absolutely. Mark Allen? 100%. All right. Folks, we've been talking to Dr. Charles Goldman, who's in the studio with me, and we're going to be back for more conversation with him. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Mark Allen Derry for joining us. He's a key uh, infectious disease physician in New Orleans. Mark Allen, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. When we come back, folks, we're going to be talking about wind, how big oil companies are getting into wind, and how that raises some interesting questions back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. 
You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host with Dr. Charles Goldman. Hey, thanks to the local businesses who helped make this program possible, including Groovy Goods. That's Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop where everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Groovy Goods is a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You can learn more at groovy-goods.com or stop in at 23rd University in Des Moines. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Our cat loves her. Our chickens, well, I don't know if they love Kim, but they're alive because of her. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or call Dr. Holding at 515-232-8766. All right, so a recent article in The Guardian asked this question. Why is a big oil company investing huge amounts of money in Wyoming wind? Well, apparently, because there's money in it. Because there's money in it. And I think also because they know, as Exxon has known for decades, that they've got to get out of fossil fuels eventually. They're kind of waiting until the last minute. You know, when the planet is on the verge of collapse, they'll jump off. And, but they want to make sure, you know, damn the torpedoes. They want to make sure they've got their next uh, scheme for maximizing profits and, becoming, and maintaining their monopoly status. They want to make sure they've got that under control. And... How, how, how do you well, suggest that it's going to be done differently? Well, what they're doing is, uh, is monopolizing wind. I mean, Iowa, Iowa gets 57% of its wind generation, uh, sorry, electrical generation from wind. And we'll talk about the problems of that. There's, there's some, mm. some good to that as well. But the, um, the problem that I'm seeing is in Iowa, 30% of our wind is now being exported. And uh, with this uh, wind farm being built in Wyoming, there's this vast... Uh, display of wind turbines. Almost all of that, as my understanding is correctly, they're they're building a transmission line to take it all the way to the West Coast. Right. It, in fact, it, will, it will provide seventy five percent of LA electricity for LA, which is amazing. Yeah, which is amazing. But is it right? Is it right to put all that burden on the folks in Wyoming in this case, so you can power a community that now has no water? Um, it's well, surrounded how, by fire. How, how is that any different, Ed, <laughs> than having your water poisoned? Or other, you know, side effects of fracking or of coal mining that these, uh, you know, that really Wyoming is known for. So that's generally the case, that the people who are advantaged are the people who live where people live in the United States. And the vast majority of people in the United States live in large cities. They, they live in places that are no longer going to be livable. And maybe there's... 
you know, I, I, this is... Which? May, they, may, Wyoming? Maybe. Wyoming because we've poisoned it, or West Virginia because we've, we've poisoned it from coal mining, or, no, or we've, L.A.? Pla- the places like that have been poisoned. Those are basically climate sacrifice zones. That's correct. They've been, they've been sacrificed in order for people it, to it, be it, able to sustain lifestyles in places where it's not possible to continue to live much longer. Uh, I mean, the water situation out west is unsustainable. There's no, there's no way you can envision a future for that many millions of people. Well, but, but, you, but you, you can't have it both ways, which is that if we believe that central generation of electricity from large-scale renewable projects is going to allow us to burn less carbon-based fuels and therefore do something to try to slow down the climate change, which is leading to the very drought patterns we're seeing and the unusable torrential rains that just run off, um, that I, I think you can't be against it just because someone's well, going to make money I, off no, I, of I it. Think, I think you inadvertently <laughs> hit the nail on the head, Charles. The, we, first of all, we don't want centralization, but centralization is key if you envision a handful of really, really powerful, wealthy monopolies continuing this, um, this endless growth game. The, the endless growth, growth paradigm is what has to end. We can't continue to get bigger. We can't continue to expand. Uh, we can't continue to see the Earth's population you know, grow to 10 billion. This is not sustainable. Uh, we, we, you know, you, you, you've got to at some point realize maybe a, maybe, a, maybe a non-materialistic, a spiritually motivated life is better than the one we've been told we have to live as, quote, consumers. And once you start embracing that paradigm, a new paradigm, then you don't need these huge monopolies producing endless amounts of uh, power and shipping it from places with little political clout to places that demand it, even if they aren't in areas where their communities are sustainable. Well, I mean, I, I've made that point multiple times, but the, the problem is who is going to sacrifice and... Are Americans willing to make personal sacrifices? Getting right back to what we just talked about, Americans aren't willing to put a mask on their face because they claim it's an infringement on their freedoms. And you're <laughs> going to ask people to you to turn the thermostat down. Remember that's remember Carter was seen as a wimp. Wear the sweater. Wear the sweater. Yeah. Right. He was seen turn as it a down wimp a little bit yeah. because he told Americans to turn it down, to turn the thermostat down, so that we weren't you know being slaves to the oil interests in, in, in the Middle East. Right. I, I just think that centralized production of certain aspects of renewable energy makes sense. Yeah, I, I mean, you're not going to have windmills in everybody's house. You no, can have solar panels. You could have solar panels in everybody's house. Or, or you could have commu- I mean, municipally, municipally operated utilities make a lot of sense. But the problem is the, the, big, the big utility companies in Iowa, Mid-American, and Alliant, they oppose efforts to, uh, to downsize, uh, to localize the production and distribution of power. I mean, we saw what happened in Decor, a small town in northeast Iowa. Mm-hmm. They, they fought hard. To, um, to build a municipal utility, and they lost by, what, four or five votes. They fought hard in Iowa City. And these, these are progressive towns that have a lot of folks who think deeply, who make good cases for why this stuff should be localized, and they still lost. So, yeah, I, it's, it's a challenge. Uh, and I, you know, but, I, again, what we're doing now is not sustainable. And I, I just think, you know, so, all right, so you agree with me, though, that the 
growth paradigm that we cur currently operate on, under, the one that says we've got to always be producing more, getting bigger, consuming more, blah, blah, blah. You agree that's oh, not I, sustainable. Oh, absolutely not. So what point do we find, at what point do we challenge it and come out with a different model? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's really interesting because the generation of people who most challenged it in, within the last century were the generation who were in their you know, 20s in the 1960s. And they grew up to be, right, peace and love, right. They grew up to be as avaricious, if not more avaricious, than the generations that preceded them. So if, if the commune peace and love generation is now, you know, uh, trading cryptocurrencies, which uses up probably an entire city's worth of electricity <laughs> to, quote, mine, um, it, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm hard pressed to figure out who's going to be willing to make these sacrifices. We're a country which is based on selfishness. I mean, it's really obvious if, 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 the, if the pandemic hasn't convinced you of that. The selfishness of people is, is unfathomable in this country. Yes, and on the other hand, the generosity and compassion that people are able to generate uh, is pretty impressive. That's true. At a local, interpersonal level, even some of the people who I probably wouldn't speak to if I knew they voted for Trump, <laughs> he, there's a lot of generosity among all people. But at a, 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 at a larger level, we are just arrayed against each other. Well, and that argues against... Uh, uh, you know, scaling anything too large, whether it's back to your point, power generation, or communities for that matter. I mean, I I know that big cities have some purpose to play, but maybe, you know, maybe the um, the village model that Gandhi envisioned, the uh, the Jeffersonian model in this country that that saw power and and uh, and democracy working best in, in in at small levels. You know, town meetings. Uh, uh, you know, units that are functional, I mean, that are it, human scale. It's a good point. I mean, you can look at, for instance, with the evolution of Judaism into Christianity. Judaism was a religion that worked as a tribal religion, mm -hmm. but it really didn't work as a universalizable religion. How's it going and, now? Well, no, it's, it's not. <laughs> it's not universalizable, you know, in many ways. And and that that's what Christianity did. It, it took those concepts and made them so that they could be writ large. The problem is, is that... Our country was brought together when there was 13 relatively sparsely populated colonies in a large area. On stolen land. On stolen land, right. Um, and now it's a system that is, it, it, this system is, is very difficult to make the compromises you're talking about. Yes. Because the system is very prone to favor those who have the money. And those who have the money are the oligarchs and the industrialists. And that has always been the case in the United States. All right. Well, hey, when we, uh, I'm going to take a short break here, Charles. When we come back, uh, we're going to switch gears, talk about affirmative action. Does it have a future? Back in a minute with you on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services 
for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of architecture by synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. Charles Goldman here in our studio in Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, you can support this alternative to the right-wing shock jocks by becoming a monthly sponsor. Just email me at ed at fallonforum.com for details. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, uh, Bold Iowa, building rural-urban coalitions to address the climate crisis. You can learn more at boldiowa.com. Also, Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes and workshops on how to turn your yard into dinner. You can get more information at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, so Charles, uh, welcome back to the program, folks. Um, from The New Yorker, this is uh, last week, Charles, and I quote, affirmative action is one of many policies that take race into account as a way of reversing the effects of many more policies lasting for many more years that openly discriminated against black people. The Supreme Court has been ruling on these policies for half a century, in 1954, the court joined the civil rights revolution in a unanimous decision declaring legally segregated public schools to be unconstitutional. Since then, it has had a much harder time making up its mind in cases involving race, end quote. And my suspicion, Charles, is the uh, challenges of addressing affirmative action before the U.S. Supreme Court and elsewhere are going to get even more sticky as we go forward. Well, I think that's true given the balance of power on the court. But in in all fairness, when when you especially specifically read through this article, which is a good history of affirmative action in the United States, um, you come to realize that while a knee-jerk reaction would be to say, well, it needs to be protected, um, it turns out that affirmative action is not a policy that is supported as much by the usual suspects as you would think. For instance, mm-hmm. well— Let's take California. I would say California usually is seen as the bellwether of progressivism. California has a referendum-generated ban on using race in any way for admission to the UC schools. And when, did, when was that passed? That was passed in the mid-'90s and then reaffirmed last year Really, when Biden won the state by 30 points. Um, <laughs> It's, we all know California is a majority-minority state, yet affirmative action polls negatively by a substantial margin mm-hmm. in California. Even among African-Americans in California, it has less than 40% support. And what about, what about your typical classical liberal? It depends on—they're the, all over the place. When you look at the cases that have been brought recently, the, the Fisher 1 and Fisher 2, and now the case— um, What is Fisher 1 and Fisher 2? Well, Fisher 1 and Fisher 2 was Ed Bloom, this, fix, oh, this uh, yeah, conservative yeah. fixer uh, out of Michigan. On uh, admissions policies at universities. Right, right. Yeah. and he, okay. he was involved in the—Abigail um, Fisher was a student who applied to UT Austin, did not get in. A uh, white student. She was a white— Jewish student. Uh, the fact that she was Jewish may have been more just an accident by virtue of the fact that 
Bloom was friendly with, with her father. But the picking of, of a Jewish student was probably quite interesting because Jewish groups, for instance, which are notoriously leaning liberal, mm-hmm. have been very um, split on which side of the amicus briefs they've been filing in these cases. And why is that? Well, because Jews were, um, were subject to numerical quotas in uh, coming out of the 40s with the, when the GI Bill made Ivy League schools and big state schools affordable to a much more diverse population. I mean, just remember that the Ivy League schools were mostly children of those sure. who were wealthy. Right. And the GI Bill democratized the universities around the country. And required a certain number of, example, for example, Jewish students to be accepted. It basically, Harvard, was, yeah, Harvard had a numerical quota on how many Jews could be accepted. So the oh, his- so they wouldn't they wouldn't go beyond that. That's correct. Oh. <laughs> that's correct. I, I, no, no, it was just the opposite. You. It was just the opposite of affirmative action. It was basically <laughs> this is how many Jews we'd accept, and that was it. That's it. No right. More. And this is and here again, this is Harvard, right? Right. Seen as a bastion of liberalism. The other thing Harvard did was <laughs> they were the first. Conant, who was their president, was the first to say, "I need a." objective way of assessing the students who were applying. Did they have similar uh, caps on, for example, women, blacks? Uh, it, just, just well, Jews? blacks weren't even able to use the GI Bill Okay. at many of these schools right. by law. Yeah. Okay. And so the point is, is that they, you know, Harvard was the one who started to make the SAT the determinant right. for admission to try to make it fair. fair. Yeah. Right. Then, of course, the whole thing came out about, well, these are obviously culturally biased tests. Sure. And they also, not so much that they're culturally biased tests. What they really are is class biased tests. Yes, because, because And, that, and this, this is an important distinction because a lot of the people who say, I'd like to see race go away in affirmative action would like to see class move it away from the issue of individual. And let's, let's say diversity isn't just having African Americans in, you know, in, in your student body. You know, diversity also means people from rural areas, people from poverty who may well be white, they mm-hmm. may be, well be, you know, Latinos, sure. they could be anybody. The problem has become that the high cost of education has become an impediment to people from the lower economic classes in the United States having access to an education. Right. And then spending the rest of your life paying for it. Right. And so, yeah. the, but this is this is the thing that's going back and forth with this issue of affirmative action. And and. Here's, here's a situation where President Obama and Clarence Thomas have something in common. And I know that you, uh, you're uh, not going to... Uh, other than race. the fact that they're yeah. both African-Americans. Yeah. Okay. So Clarence Thomas, one of the reasons that he is vehemently against affirmative action is that he feels personally that it demeans how he got to where he got. Well, President Obama, although he was a supporter of affirmative action... When he made application to the Harvard Law Review, refused to disclose what his race was hmm. because he did not want himself to be judged one way or the other. And he wanted to be able to say that when he was chosen to Harvard Law Review, it had nothing to do with, you know, white guilt or yeah. anything like if that. He, if he'd written Kenyon, he might have got, had a better chance <laughs> right. of Kenyon, right? Yeah. So, no. So, anyway, what's, what's happening at the Supreme Court now is, is that um, akin to the UT case, this time using right. Asian Students, yes, yes, which students. is very savvy. The the you know Bloom has gotten and here again there, there were there were Asian uh, Asian Pacific groups on both sides of the the Fisher case. Um, 
here they are claiming that a couple things. One, that affirmative action, which focuses solely on being African-American, is unfair to Asians, that they are also a minority in this country. Why is it not affirmative action to them? And the second issue, which was sort of adjudicated already in the state courts, was whether Harvard was using certain criteria that were clearly racist in terms of how they were evaluating the emotional uh, aspect of the Asian students who were applying. So that's not here. It's it's strictly a race issue, and so in fact, Bloom, this Republican conservative fixer, specifically after losing the Fisher cases, because Fisher one and two, one was sort of favorable to Fisher, but then two said no affirmative action stands. Um, said right after, I need to find. Literally, he said this that I need to find a case involving Asian students. <laughs> And this is what he did. So it's 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 a it's it's a straw man case, yeah. and my suspicion is that affirmative action, specifically and only this is not affirmative action in everything. This is affirmative action based only on race in higher education. This is all this case is about is probably dead. Yeah. Well, I mean, given the fact that uh, that there are lots of uh, folks within various demographics that are supposed to be helped by affirmative action, given that there are a lot of folks there who are opposed to it, you know, and, and given you got this vast, I presume that nearly every person in the Republican universe of the electorate is probably against it, you've got a majority of people who have concerns about it. And, you know, and I, I think my, my concern is that if we get rid of affirmative action, we'll forget that we do have a racial bias problem in this country that still needs to be addressed. It, 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 it's a great point because, in fact, affirmative action has clearly helped um, African Americans to get what you need to have entree to those industries that mm -hmm. are leading right. and get leadership in those industries. So you're right. And, of course, the other thing is whites forget that the GI Bill was affirmative action, essentially. It was government-sponsored. It wasn't right. affirmative action, right. but it, because it allowed them to pay for their education. See, everyone forgets and, that they're entitled. And housing as well. Right, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and it's, this is part and parcel of the same thing about this nonsense about critical race theory, that there isn't a, there isn't a 12th grader or an elementary school student in this country who could tell you what a critical race theory is. The only people who could tell you are people who graduates from Ivy League law schools. We're going to have to talk about critical race theory soon. We should. But not today, because yeah. we've, got, we've got to move on. We've got to go to a short break. And speaking of the divining the future of important things, affirmative action in this case, the future of the Olympics, you could have a lot, uh, we could have a lot to say about what happens with the Olympics. Uh, we'll be back in a minute for that conversation on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766.
Hey, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Here we are, folks. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Olympics here. Uh, thanks again to those in our listening audience who support this program. If you're not already supporting our mission, consider a donation on the Fallon Forum website, or better, better yet, become a monthly sponsor. Just send me an email at edit.fallonforum.com. And thanks to the local businesses who are helping to support this program as well, including Western Optometry. That's located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Klipsham knows we must build better health for people and the planet, and the services he provides are committed to that. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, so, you know, the Olympics, I, I figure with the doping issues, conflicts over appropriate clothing, uh, empty stadiums, how everyone can even watch the games, the um, increasingly meaninglessness of national identity, national boundaries, uh, you know, and also what, 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 what do host cities do with all this infrastructure that's left behind? Oh, and of course, the perennial stupidity of Russia. It's a fair question. Is there a future for the Olympics or is this game, so to speak, run its course. Charles? Uh, yeah, absolutely there's a future. Because the elites of the countries and these cities want there to be an Olympics. It's never made sense. Well, I mean, again, the Olympics started in the eight, late 1800s as an all-white, all-male uh, European collection in Athens, Greece. And then didn't expand to include women until the early 1900s. Well, it's uh, not it's not a bastion of progressivism. I would, yeah, obviously, but yeah, but athletics <laughs> in general is not a bastion of progressivism. I mean, this whole thing, for instance, with Simone Biles, you know, I mean, I know, like, you know, this has been, you know, among the woke left, it, this is all about her being black. No, it's just about the jingoism, stupidity of the people who watch sports in this country and who vicariously live their experience through them. People who couldn't get off the couch no less do what she does, who are writing in, you know, comments about, you know, she, you know, let down her teammates and she let down the country. Yeah, were they out there every day practicing the way she had to? I mean, it's just, so, I, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a heck of a lot of uh, importance put on the Olympics. And I, I mean, I, and I love the Olympics. Oh, this year I haven't watched a single second of it because I can't figure out how to do that. Well, <laughs> NBC, <laughs> NBC dominates it and we don't have right. a TV. So trying to figure out how to watch it online. No, I think there is actually an NBC Olympics.com. Okay, I have not been able to make that work on my end. But anyway, that okay. may be a reflection of my own technical yeah. stupidity. But, but the, um, I mean, I'm looking at some of the things that are happening. The, uh, I mean, Shelby Houlihan. Uh, Sioux City native, uh, and a U.S. record holder in the 1,500 and 5,000 meters, banned from the Olympics and for an additional four years because she was, she took a drug test and something she hadn't even, she hadn't even heard of popped up in the test. And it was pretty clear to her and others that it was from pork eaten at a any burrito truck. Boy, and that really tells you what the pork's like at a burrito well, truck. Well, no, it just tells you that the... That, well, <laughs> that's not fair, because uh, apparently apparently pigs produce this chemical as well. And if you eat part of a pig and right. you get a test the next day... so But, I mean, she wanted to take another test. Yeah. And and, 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 and an anti-doping uh, group agreed, yeah, she should be allowed to take another test. And the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, refused. 
How stupid is that? How well, unfair wait, no, is that? No, I'm sorry. There was dumber than that because there was also the U.S. sprinter who was banned because she tested positive for marijuana as a performance-enhancing substance. Uh, that has not been any experience I've ever seen How with is marijuana, marijuana a, as a performance-enhancing. Well, it depends on what you're performing. <laughs> well, <laughs> well I, I, I don't know. I mean, of course, it's ludicrous. So and, then, we, and then, of course, you've got the ROC, the Russia Olympic Committee there. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. hilarious. Who's, Those are the, uh, what, 300-plus Russian athletes who didn't dope up. We but, think they didn't dope well, up. Well, right. yeah, okay. But, <laughs> exactly. but you have the... I mean, Russia... I mean, just... I... I, I, I mean, <laughs> You know, if they weren't so evil, they'd be comical. <laughs> but the, the, the continued denial, no, we did nothing wrong. No, nothing to see here. And then, I mean, just just, I, just being caught blatantly. Okay, uh, but on the other side... Of, the numbers. On the other side of this, it, it is an a opportunity every four years to see sports that people enjoy, that right. people train their whole lives to participate in, that aren't... Football, baseball, basketball, and hockey, you know. Now, those sports are to some degree included in them, and unfortunately, soccer is included. <laughs> what do you mean, unfortunately? <laughs> well, <laughs> no. I mean, obviously, soccer. Are you, you going to dis- dis- huge? Oh, I hate gonna, soccer. You, oh, really? You're going to diss the U.S. women's soccer no, team like no. Trump did? No. Okay, no, I, I just I find soccer that extraordinarily boring. Well, that's because you just don't have, don't have an imagination. Well, I, I don't have the imagination okay, so, for watching a game for ninety okay, minutes to so, see two shots so on goal. So football, one <laughs> one one score counts for seven points. Oh no, I'm not well, giving I'm not giving more value <laughs> to football. That's my point, which is that the Olympics do provide a venue, a, a worldwide stage, for sports that people enjoy, and you know. Participate in here with very little recognition, and um, it, and it, what's really interesting is what what happened the other day with the woman from Puerto Rico who won the hundred meter hurdles. You know, I missed and, it because well, I'm not able to right because you weren't able to find the uh, exactly <laughs> find the live stream. Now, well, first of all, what was interesting was she actually is you know a Amer- a dual citizen of well, right. If you're Puerto yeah. Rican, you're an American citizen. To one of my other points, right? But yeah. Um, but she ran for Puerto Rico because her mom is a native Puerto Rican. And so um, that in itself I thought was pretty interesting. And, and how that, they kind of made that distinction. So, you know, it's a medal separate from the U.S. total, which of course everyone's become fixated on. But all they kept talking about was that her brother is a draft pick of the Chicago Bears. <laughs> I mean, she just like won this event in like world record time or well, it Olympic shows you what's time. most important here. Right. You know, Football. everything is everything is is predicated on the four major sports in the here US, in the United yeah. States. Which again, I mean, in the rest of the world, the major sport is soccer, even yeah, if you that, don't like it. No, I understand. It yeah. is. It uh, yeah, and, and obviously, Can rug, there, rugby, another hugely popular sport outside of the United States. In some know? places, yeah. yeah. So I mean, what, and, and you've got these um, these conflicts over clothing. I mean. The IOC, no, the IOC must be as conservative as the it, Catholic it's, College of it's Cardinals. It's got to be uh, a bunch of like sixty-year-old guys, you know, because it's mm-hmm. ludicrous. The, the beach volleyball, you, the beach volleyball people. And that's actually not the IOC. That's actually the Beach Volleyball Association. Right, requires okay. that the women have to, you know, wear yeah, these to, like to, micro bikinis. You yeah, know, and, <laughs> yeah. And the Norwegian women said, "No, we're going to wear something." Well, comfortable. that was the, that was the handball team. That was no, team handball. That was yeah, team handball. Beach handball. No, it, it, yeah. it, no, it was the team handball. But nevertheless, the point is that 
in almost every sport, you're absolutely right. The women are seem to require yeah. much more revealing outfits. Than and and you have the uh, the German um, gymnast who decided, I'm just going to wear what, what's comfortable, and it's not mm-hmm. standard. Right. Uh, the IOC didn't crack down on her because there was no prohibition of wearing. Right, but they probably, uh, you know, they, probably they probably reduced her degree of difficulty. <laughs> right, right. Because <laughs> she, she was trying wearing. a point taken by the judges. Well, because right. all those sequins get in your yeah, way when you're right. actually trying to do those maneuvers. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, to me, uh, you know, and... Look at all the all the all the athletes who could they have, they have dual citizenship or they've mm-hmm. lived in the U.S. for a while well, yeah, the, or some other country. The guy who for won a while. the hundred meter dash. Well, he only lived in Texas for a for short, short time, period, like, huh? like like a month. Well, he was an anchor baby. I think. Yeah, I think he was born here. He um, was. He was born in he's Texas. Born here, but, so he's an anchor baby. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that I just I, you know maybe maybe the maybe the Olympics survives as a contest of uh, either individuals or. Teams that uh, that 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 work well together, you know. I guess get rid of the nationalism completely. I mean, even or even look at Russia. Instead of Russia, play, when a, when an ROC athlete wins a medal, mm-hmm. they don't play the Russian national anthem. They're not allowed, right? That's right. They play a Tchaikovsky piece. They, they can't even use. <laughs> they can't even use the flag. Yeah, they can't even use the. Uh, the so why, Russian, why, Russian flag. I mean, maybe maybe Russia is onto something here. Maybe we should just get rid of all the flags, all the anthems. Let people compete for who they are. Um, wherever you know, if they want to claim they're from a certain part of the world, great, go for it. Just well, de-emphasize that. I, I, I don't think that'll work because the nationalism is also what drives viewership, and what pays for the Olympics is the TV contract yeah. from around, not just the TV contract for the United States. Well, and, but and the Olympics the became world. very commercialized starting back in the mm-hmm. '60s when the shoe companies started kind of infiltrating. No, it's true. Yeah, they, mean, they were Adi- not. Adi- this, Adi- they were not this first, commercialized, yeah. but I think it's hard to go back to. Yeah, the way it was, and certainly not back to the days of the Greeks. Yeah, <laughs> well, um, talk about scantily clad. Exactly, yeah, that's right. But that they, was all men compete, too. It was all men competing naked. Men wrestling naked. <laughs> oh, that that could be that could be a draw. I don't know. This probably well, this it would, probably it a would avoid it would avoid that. the you know the the trans athlete issue that the, the Republicans are trying to gin up. Yeah, right. You know, if everybody was naked. Anyway, <laughs> well, I I don't know what the future of the Olympics is, but um, this has been the most disappointing one for me yet. I, well, yeah. the viewership has been very poor, and I think most many some people of the, feel the same way. Some of the IOC decisions have been really stupid. The doping stuff, the clothing stuff, you know, mm-hmm. just come on. Anyway. Hey, uh, Charles, it's been great having you on the program. We've got to run to a short break. When we come back, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to talk about uh, all these cucumbers and other things you might be wanting to do with the stuff coming out of your garden. Uh, preservation, big deal. We'll talk about it in a minute when we come back on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. 
I don't know about you folks, but the smoke from the Western fires, it's been a problem here in the Midwest. I know it's been a problem in New York. And again, if folks haven't woken up to the reality of the climate emergency, we better do it soon. Anyway, I want to thank the local business uh, business partners that helped make this program possible. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can order groceries online, and Gateway also offers catering and floral services. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. So... This time of the year, if you garden at all, you're probably thinking, what do I do with all this extra produce? How do I save the cucumbers? With me to help process, pun intended, that conversation is Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Kathy, welcome to the program. Thanks, and uh, we have this problem, Ed. We don't just like to eat when the food is coming on the vine or on the plant. We like to eat year-round. It is a horrible addiction. I mean, we eat breakfast, and three hours later, we have to satisfy our addiction a second time, not, in, just, not just in the summertime. And in between those times, we're, we're thinking and talking about food. <laughs> right. We're real foodies. As soon as done, we're done with this program, we're going to be strategizing supper, I think. That's right. Yeah, so God, I mean, we have a lot of cucumbers. And I know people kind of know what to do with cucumbers. You make pickles or relish. Well, we eat a lot fresh, but yes. there's only so many cucumbers, and I made the dire mistake of planting too many cucumbers this year, so we're going to have a lot. <laughs> We've never made that mistake before. Well, we we, uh, we do a good relish with the pickles, so a sweet relish. You and I are, aren't the dill pickle fans, but we like a sweet relish. And you found a new way to um, to process cucumbers. You have a, a, a meat grinder. You put them in a meat grinder. Well, it's new to me. Right. I, uh, you know, I don't like to have to get out a food processor. I have one, but I don't like to get it out too often, use you know, electricity to chop up a vegetable. But the first uh, batch of relish that I made this year, I, it took a long, long time for me to chop all those cucumbers. And so uh, I, I pulled out, it's, it's nothing new. It's uh, There's old-fashioned recipes that say, grind the cucumbers. And I thought, what is this? And I thought, wait a minute, I bought a little meat grinder a while ago, <laughs> the intention to grind dried corn, but... Uh, I thought I'm gonna put these pickles through the through the meat grinder, and it worked. Yeah, yeah. I I cut them up into quarters or eighths or whatever size, and just fed them one at a time. Yeah, we of course uh, are also beginning the process of um, of, of dealing with a uh, influx of tomatoes. <laughs> you are a good saucer, well, Ed. You well, really know how to I sauce mean, some tomatoes. Some folks have uh, determinant varieties, which will give you the whole crop at once, and you just kind of have your sauce weekend. We don't. We have heirloom indeterminate varieties, so we're getting tomatoes starting in July, running all the way through October. And so every week, or even more often sometimes, we've got tomatoes to make into sauce. I, we make it an all-day event. We start mm -hmm. early and let them simmer and cook down all day long on, on very slow heat. The house smells really good. A yeah. slow simmering batch and, of tomato and sauce. And we add humidity sweet. to the already humidity laden air, but that's just the way it goes, you know. But um, yeah, other things, I mean, I, somebody the other day was asking, what do you do with all these cherry tomatoes? Uh, my favorite is to spread them out on a cookie sheet, uh, jelly roll pan, some people call it, with the little sides on it, douse them with a little bit of olive oil, salt, and pepper a couple of cloves of garlic, and roast those until they are gooey. And then you just save that in the freezer, mm. and it makes fantastic 
um, base for a, a flatbread or pizza sauce or even a pasta. Uh, people were also asking, we, uh, we planted 300 onions and people are saying, <laughs> are you crazy? But no, we will actually go, th- that's about an onion a day. That's, that's not that's not unreasonable. That's not if you like onions like we do. And we have two different types of well, we have four varieties, mm-hmm. but two different types: the sweet onions, the big, walla walla type sweet onions that don't keep that long, but they're really wonderful mm. and they're and they're huge, great slicers, good for um for uh, grilling. And then we have the smaller ones that keep through the winter ideally, and that's, that's easy. You just kind of cure them a little bit. We we hung them up on the on the balcony where they're out of the sun. They get some air. Now they're in the basement. But the sweet onions, I find that uh, that you can cut them up and not break out in tears. If you um, do it outside and have a bowl of water where you dip that onion in the water when you peel it and then slice it up fine. And you know, the nice thing about onions is you don't have to blanch them. You just cut them up and freeze them. That's right. And you want them nice and airtight, though. Yes. If you use a plastic Ziploc kind of a baggie, uh, save those from year to year as we do. We alphabetize them. Peppers, you can do the exact same way. Just cut and freeze. You can cut them into little chunks or into strips. Uh, you can have a variety. And the nice thing is you're, if you're saving seed, you can take the entire pepper, cut it up, either eat it or freeze it, and also save the seed. Um, ideally, that pepper is a little bit older than some of the first pickings. Right now, we're still just dealing with our, uh, our, fir- our early green ones. But you want to kind of ideally let the pepper get nice and yellow or red or whatever color it tends mm. to get, depending on the variety. And then also save the seed. Another easy one to preserve by freezing is okra. It <laughs> really just go, you just have your clean okra plant and you just put it in a Ziploc baggie and freeze it or whatever container you have this airtight. And I guess you could make uh, jambalaya out of that. Yeah. But what we tend to do is, uh, and we even, we, we even grill... Outside, on wood in the winter. I think the coldest I've ever grilled at is six below zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, it warms <laughs> hey, it up a It keeps little. you warm, right. So, but okra works really well. It's, I mean, the fact that it's frozen, you put it on the grill pan, and the water, of course, ignites the fire a bit. But uh, it cooks up pretty good. And it's not as good as fresh, but it's not bad. It's not bad at all. Not at all. Eggplant, uh, folks have different ways of preserving eggplant. Some people roast it and freeze it. Uh, We tend to just make ours into eggplant parmesan and then spread those, you know, take those out of the pan carefully when they're cool, put them in uh, double layer foil and freeze the whole thing. That way when you're short on time, sometime deep in the, you know, throes of winter, you can pull one of those out in the morning and let it thaw and then you can have a really nice hot dish. Or in June, June when you're very busy with garden tasks, we had our last eggplant parmesan from the freezer just last month. We did. Or I think a month and a half ago, I guess. It takes a little more effort with uh, some of the foods we've been collecting to preserve some fruits, blackberries, apples, peaches. Um, Ed made a lot of applesauce. Of course, that involves more effort. Um, I put together some apple pie um, mix and froze that. Uh, that didn't take any cooking at all. That'll cook in the oven. Um, peaches we got a lot of. And then I made some jam this morning. And I'm not happy with the recipe because I followed the recipe on the <laughs> pectin That's container. what you get for following orders, Kathy. Oh, What's wrong uh, with you? It's too sweet <laughs> and it's too firm. They they called for twice the pectin I would have used had I just been going with my instinct or found an old recipe I liked. 
Um, so I followed the directions and I made about 12, 12, you know, half pints of peach jam with beautiful, perfect ripe peaches. And I think it's too sweet. Yeah. Well, disappointing. I promise you, I will not be disappointed. So, <laughs> yeah, and apple, you know, applesauce is 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 a, it's it involves effort, but it's fairly straightforward. You you cut up the apples, you take all the bad spots out. I, I leave the skins on, and then I just cook them down. I put a little bit of water in the saucepan so they don't burn. Keep it on a fairly low heat. Cook it down till it's mashable, uh, and then I run it through the colander. Uh, I put it in the col. I put the colander over a, a large bowl. Put the apples in the colander and just start mashing them through the colander, and that takes a while because you're you're gradually mashing all the goodness out of the skins as well. Mm. And then I just um, I pack it into quart jars or pint jars, maybe mm-hmm. even better depending on your you know how, how big of a serving you want. And then boil it for at this altitude at 1,000 feet above sea level, we boil it for about 25 minutes mm-hmm. in a hot water bath. With a, at least an inch or so of water above that sea. Yes, yeah. So, and that's a, that's just a great thing to have in the wintertime. Couple of um, couple of vegetables that require a similar is uh, the blanch and shock or freeze uh, green beans, collards, kale. We've got a lot cabbage of those. Cabbage too. Cabbage. We've got a lot of that put away mm. now. And we are going to eat the heck out of that this winter. And, of course, potatoes. We've planted 400 potatoes. We won't harvest most of those till October. But the new ones, we've harvested, um, let them cure outside for just, I'm not even sure you call it curing, just kind of dry outside mm-hmm. for a day. And now you don't want to put them in the fridge. That'll ruin them. We put them in boxes and then on top of the freezer downstairs where the temperature is about around 60, which is a little bit warmer than you want. But, hey, that's pretty close. Downstairs so. is a cellar for us, which is yes. a cooler space than some people's. Yeah, but on top of the freezer is cooler still. <laughs> Kathy, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Talking to Kathy Burns, folks, with Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Hey, thanks to our guests today, Marcus Kanan, Charles Goldman, Mark Allen Derry, and Kathy Burns. And thanks to our local business sponsors, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Westrom Optometry, Groovy Goods, and David Drake Family Psychiatry. Also, thanks to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to our production team of Kathy Burns, Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, and myself, Ed Fallon. Remember, folks, your support for this program matters a lot. Sign up for my weekly email about the, uh, about the program on the Fallon Forum website. And thanks again. We'll be back next week with another hour of cutting-edge talk radio on the Fallon Forum.